Amen. But well, please uh, turn with me to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Again, there'll be a link in the. Uh, if you're on your phone, there should be a link to it uh, to read the first seven verses. And uh, we come to a, a pivotal moment. Uh, the Bible can be divided into two parts. Uh, there's the part that's before Genesis 3 6, and the whole of the rest of it that's after 3 6. <laughs> Uh, verse 6 is the crucial moment. Uh, but let's read God's words. Remember that uh, God has made uh, the earth in, in six days and then rested on the seventh. And then chapter 2 deals with uh, the creation of man and the uh, description of the Garden of Eden. And uh, now we come to chapter 3. And uh, Moses tells us, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not you will not surely die for god knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like god knowing good and evil so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So over the last few weeks we've been considering um, together these opening chapters of Genesis, and uh, last time we saw the, uh, the beauty of the Garden of Eden. Um, which uh, speaks, as we saw, it speaks eloquently of the sheer grace of God and his his willingness to give himself uh, to the the creatures that he has made, to the, the human beings that bear his image that he has made. And this is the environment that God has established uh, to do that. And uh, it's a beautiful setting, uh, no matter which way you look at it. And it's a wonderful picture of the the grace of God, the kind of God we have who's willing to give himself to his creatures. Uh, And we saw a number of features, just over the last few weeks, we've seen a number of features of this life that man is now to live uh, in relationship to God. Uh, We've seen that he's to work and to keep uh, the garden and to rule over the creatures. And uh, we've seen how he is to is to rest. He's to follow the pattern that God has set. Uh, he, God Himself, six days creating, and then on the seventh day He rested from all His creating. And in like manner, uh, uh, men and women are to take a day in seven to rest and uh, uh, to give themselves to to God and to put their work aside. And then we've seen also uh, how. Uh, 
as God has made man and woman, the ideal relationship is, uh, is, ma- is a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Uh, it's a, a glorious thing and something to be... Uh, uh, to be maintained and to be encouraged uh, that marriage is a gift of God, not just to Christians, but to all humanity. And, uh, uh, and the woman is to be at the side of the man, helping with the mission that God has given him, and thus both of them together. Now, all of this, of course, sets up a, a network of relationships, uh, as you may uh, have seen. It, it establishes uh, relationships between human beings. It establishes a uh, relationship between human beings and the rest of creation. And it establishes, and most importantly, uh, the, that relationship that human beings have with God. Uh, a network of relationships. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? I hope you, you understand that and you agree with that. But you may remember that last week uh, we hinted at the, the idea that actually, beautiful though the Garden of Eden is, it isn't actually the final destination. Uh, it's not the final glory that human beings are to get into. There's, uh, it's, it's right to say, actually, that in the whole process of salvation that is, comes through Jesus Christ is not to get us back to the Garden, but actually to get beyond the garden to something else. And and we know that because in the garden there were these two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, First of all, uh, a place of probation and testing of Adam. He had to uh, obey the command of God and not eat the fruits of that tree. And uh, so there's presented to Adam that possibility of failure uh, and disobedience, and also the threat of death. You, you notice that back in t- chapter 2, verse 17, that in the day that you eat of it, God says, you shall surely die. Uh, and then the other tree that's in the garden is the, is the tree of life. Um, and that was to be a continuing sign to Adam and Eve of a yet further blessing that is to be received. The tree of life. And uh, as we saw last time, uh, was it last time? I can't remember. Um, as we saw, uh, the tree of life keeps popping up in the, the, the rest of the Bible in various places. The book of Proverbs, the uh, book of Revelation. Um, it points to a future glory uh, that is yet to come. Now, bearing all of this in mind, uh, it shouldn't be surprising that, that Christians, therefore, down the centuries, have described this network of relationships and this uh, 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 particular, uh, centered around this particular command of ver- uh, chapter 2, verse 17. They've described that as a, a covenant relationship. Um, and it's clear that God has established a covenantal relationship with his people. I'll come back to that. Uh, well, we're just going to get into it. <laughs> what am I doing? We're, we're moving on to it. Let's talk about covenants. And, and let's, I want to show you just how the, the covenant was made. And it comes, uh, I want to just focus again on these verses in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Notice the consequence here. The consequence for eating of that tree is death. And it's a reminder, of course, that uh, just in passing, that death actually is not of the essence of human beings. 
uh, actually we are made to live and to live forever. But death is actually a consequence of disobedience and failure before God. But it's worth just asking, what's, what is intended by, in, what, is, what is meant by that term death? Uh, we, we tend to think of death in, in, in physical categories today, don't we? We think about physical death, where the body ceases to function in all of its essential parts. And the body then returns to the dust. But the Bible has two other ways of speaking about death. And it's important that as Christians we understand that. Yes, the Bible does speak about physical death, but it also speaks of what we might call a spiritual death. That's how the the Apostle Paul speaks of uh, Christians who have become uh, what what they were before they became Christians. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaks to these Gentile Christians, uh, non-Jewish Christians, and he speaks about what they were like before. And what does he say about them? He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So there was a sense in which they were living before they were Christians, and yet they were dead. They were separated from God. They never gave God a thought until God broke into their lives. So they had a form of life. They walked in life. They walked in sin. So there's a form of life there. But in in the profoundest sense, it was a death that they were in the middle of. They were dead, living but dead. It's like, uh, you know, those folks you see on on death row in the United States, you know, they talk about a dead man walking. You know, he's living but he's destined for death. And there's that kind of sense of... uh, All human beings, in their sin, are living but dead. And thankfully, there is a way back from that that state, as the Apostle Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2, that through Christ, uh, life can come. But we'll come back to that in a moment. But that's the first, the other kind of death, spiritual death. And then the Bible also speaks about a third kind of death, uh, eternal death. This is Ephesians, uh, Revelation chapter 21 uh, and verse 8. Let me just look it up. And here we have uh, the new heavens and the new earth, but it's, uh, it's not quite the, uh, the final thing yet, because there's one more thing that has to be done. Uh, verse 8 of Revelation 21. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, adulterers, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, there's there's going to be a judgment, and there will be a second death, and it will be an eternal death, a death forever, a separation from God's grace and blessing forever. And there's no way back from it. It comes at the end of all things. It comes at the judgment of God. And there's no way back from that judgment. Life will be lost eternally uh, forever. Now, back to Genesis chapter 2. What does God mean here by death? Uh, Does he mean uh, spiritual and physical death? Well, if you read on, uh, I mean, it suggests that uh, death will surely come at the moment of eating. 
But if you read on, uh, obviously there's no physical death, uh, because Adam does fall, he does eat the fruit, but there's no physical death, they still live on, but eventually comes physical death as they uh, reach old age and die. But there is that different kind of death, that separation from God's kind of death, that spiritual death that puts mankind outside of the blessing of God, that puts him outside of the garden. It's expressed in the most physical ways, as we'll see later in chapter 3, a separation from God and life suddenly becomes very hard. It's a kind of uh, spiritual death. And so that's certainly included. What about internal death for Adam and Eve? Well, it rather depends on whether another way can be found for Adam and Eve to get back to the tree of life. If there's no other way to be found, then of course they will face an eternal death. And uh, we may come back to that question later. So verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2 establish the terms of this covenant relationship. The word covenant is not used here, but it but the elements of covenant relationship are here. So you may not have the name, but you have the thing itself, right? So it's like Trinity. Uh, the Trinity is not used in the Bible, but the thing itself is there. God is there. Uh, here we have covenant. And... Uh, uh, and the Westminster Standards, uh, the, the confession of faith that we hold to, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith calls it the covenant of works. Uh, the catechisms that we hold to call it the covenant of life. So it has different names. And some Reformed theologians down the ages, down the years since the Reformation, have called it the covenant of creation. Uh, so there are different terms used to describe this covenant, but it is, in essence, a covenant. But let's move on to think about these verses in chapter 3. Here the serpent appears. Uh, He's described as more crafty than any other beast, more shrewd than any other beast. Now, shrewdness is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, We're called to be shrewd. Remember the parable of the shrewd manager? We're called to be like him. Uh, Shrewdness in itself is not a bad thing, but it's a a quality and a characteristic that can be used for evil. And this is what it is used for here in this this section. So in verses 1 to 5, we find that Eve is deceived. And do you know, I've been a Christian 40 odd years. And I realized something this week that I'd, I'd never realized before. Uh, Satan, the, the serpent, never actually says, eat the fruit. Did you notice? Never says, come on, eat the fruit. He just sows the seeds of doubt. And this is how he is shrewd and cunning. Because what happens is, Eve ends up desiring the fruit more than she would have done because of this conversation that she has uh, with the serpent. He fans the flames of desire, as it were. And so we find that in chapter 6, she is induced to to eat, uh, sorry, verse 6, she is induced to eat uh, of of the tree. And then these fateful words at the end of verse 6, and he ate. Three simple words, and he ate. And at that moment was the moment of the fall. Uh, Now why is Adam picked out? 
as the one who instigates the fall? Well, because he is the one who's given the command. He is the one who has uh, been told not to eat of it. He bears the responsibility, ultimately, for that fall. And we mustn't uh, underestimate the significance of this. This is uh, the key moment in human history. And it has, is of great significance for all of mankind. Um, if you turn with me to Romans chapter 5, you can see uh, how the Apostle Paul describes the significance of this moment. Uh, Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 12. Uh, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Or turn with, uh, or look on to, to verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, many died. He's got a further argument to make there. Verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And then in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Uh, See, a number of things follow on from the simple acts of eating the fruit. And Paul is is comparing in Romans chapter 5, the the fall of Adam and the significance of it for all of mankind. But he's also comparing it with the Lord Jesus Christ, a a a new head of a new humanity. In him, a saving, uh, saving humanity. Adam, as it were, stands for all mankind. Well, I'm okay under this cover here. But I'm sorry for you. <laughs> You're very brave. Hopefully, it won't last too long. But Adam is in this representative role, isn't he? That uh, takes where his fall has a, a detrimental effect on all his family, all his posterity, everything, uh, all of humanity afterwards. And this shouldn't surprise us. If Christ comes to save a, a body of people as a representative head, then it's not surprising that Adam also is a representative head, uh, and in him all fall. Now this shouldn't surprise us. You know, when... When a father, or a mother for that matter, commits a crime and is sent to prison, the whole family is affected. Or if a government goes to war, then the whole nation is affected by the decision of one person. There are echoes of that covenantal kind of relationship in ordinary life today, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. And friends, I need to just impress upon you this, uh, the significance of the fall, because the death rates, I wonder if, if you, you were to be asked what the death rate is in the United Kingdom today, uh, the, the simple answer is 100%. Everybody dies. Everybody is going to die. And the reason for that is not the entropy of your body in the universe in which we live. It is not old age. Theologically, the reason people die... It's because of the sin that came into the world. 
And all of that remains true unless there is a Saviour who can save us and redeem us. And that's why Paul speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is able to make dead spirits live. He is able to bring resurrection to our failed bodies. He is able to live, uh, to enable us to live eternally with Him in the presence of the glory of God. And so the covenant is made and broken. Now for the rest of our time, and I'm very conscious that you're putting up with a lot here, <laughs> but for the rest of our time, I want to just look at this uh, process of uh, temptation that Eve has brought through. Uh, five ways, I'll try and be as quick as I can, five ways in which temptation works. And this is really relevant to us today as Christians. Temptation continually assails us. So number one, Satan plays on ignorance. I think Eve doesn't have a full grasp of what's going on, what God actually said. I think she's maybe forgotten, or she wasn't, maybe wasn't listening properly. And so the serpent says to her, did God actually say, casting doubt on what he actually said? And it's such a destabilizing question. Did God really say that? And it's the kind of thing that we can face today. You know, we can say to people in the world, did uh, Jesus is the only way to salvation. But people can come back to us and say, did God really say that? Does he really say that? Would you know where to look if somebody came to you with that question? Or we believe that good works don't save you, but grace saves you through Jesus Christ and his work. Did God really say that? Or the commands. What are you doing? Are you just... It's falling over, is it? <laughs> or the commands. You shall not commit adultery, for example. Did God really say that? You see, today uh, it's such a, pr- you know, it's a universal thing, isn't it? Just commit adultery. Just do whatever you, your, wherever your heart says. But did God really say, do not commit adultery? Yes, He did. see, this question of, did God really say that, is such a destabilizing question. Uh, notice one way that uh, Eve answers that question. She, sa- she actually overcompensates. She says what is truth, that she's not to eat, she's to eat of any tree of the garden, uh, but she's not to eat of that tree, and she's not even to touch it. Well, God didn't say don't touch it, but Eve overcompensates. Instead of a simple answer, she adds to it. And uh, sometimes that can be a temptation for us. Uh, and actually misses the point of the, it can miss the point of the question. But that's what Satan does with people who have a, a weak grasp of what the Bible says, what God has said. He's able to twist you and turn you with very simple questions and destabilize you. Second thing. Second way of temptation. Assertively contradicts God. That's what Satan does. He says, it's not true. You will surely not die. And he does so with emphasis. Surely you will not die. And what he's saying is it doesn't really matter if you don't obey. There are no consequences. This is how Satan works. So somebody says to us, says to you, uh, we must believe in Jesus Christ. He's the only way. And this little voice comes into your head that says, no, he's not the only way. uh, You will not surely die if you ignore Jesus. This is how Satan works. 
These are the voices that come into our minds from all angles, from within, from outside of us. Uh, if we don't grasp, have a, gr- a grip on the truth, it causes us to weaken our hold on what God has said and we're vulnerable to temptation. Number three, third way of temptation, to suggest that God is not good after all. And this comes from verse 4. Uh, it follows closely from the previous point. Here's a question that might pop into Eve's mind. Why would God say such a thing if it's not true? Maybe God is not good after all. And Eve begins to doubt that God is really good. And I think this happens to us. We can hear and believe those words that contradict what God has said. And then trust, our trust in God begins to waver. And all that becomes very important practically. You and I, we're called as Christians to be in the world but not of it, to be pilgrims, sojourners passing through this, this life. And you and I are given a hope for the future that is yet to be realized for, uh, and be fulfilled. And yet in the meantime, we can suffer a life that is more difficult if you become a Christian. You know, to become a Christian is never an easy task. It always makes your life difficult in all kinds of profound ways. And at the same time, you see people all around you ignoring the things of God, ignoring God and all that he reveals of himself, and they seem to be having a great time. And then, so you begin to ask, is God good, really? Is he really good? Number four, suggest God is withholding some sort of blessing from you. This is what Satan does. And he asks, he kind of prompts the question in Eve's mind, what's God really up to with these commandments? Uh, we, we love conspiracy theories, don't we? Now, this is what's, uh, it happens, what, what the serpent gives Eve, a rationale for doubting God. The serpent suggests that God knows something that would be good for Eve, but wants to withhold it. And so... Uh, He says there, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't that that amazing? Uh, Satan suggests that God is withholding something amazing and wonderful from you. And even though Adam and Eve are created as a pinnacle of creation, that they have God, all that God has made as a gift to rule and to enjoy, yet Satan suggests that there is something they lack which they could have if they were allowed Yet Satan suggests that there is something they... Satan suggests that he knows God's motives, that he has a secret about God that Adam and Eve don't have. And this is a key area of temptation for us. You see, we can become very blinkers in our lives, our view of our lives. We can become dissatisfied with our lot in lives. We can fail to realize the riches that we have as a child of God in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, that God is and, and, that, and to fail to remember that God is taking us through a process that will lead us to a greater appreciation of those riches and that the, the more and more you trust him uh, the more you find him to be the satisfaction of our souls but before you get there you are assailed with temptations to believe that God is holding back from you I wonder if you're ever tempted, and I speak to Christians here, are you ever tempted to say, I don't want to get too involved in following Jesus Christ because it might make things worse. 
I want to hold on to those little pleasures that I have that last for a short time. And if I go after Jesus Christ, I may lose out. Well, Satan is tempting you. God is up. He's trying to tell you that God is holding something back from you, but if only you could grasp it and grasp it over here instead. Number five, Satan offers a key to blessing that doesn't involve God. And the suggestion that uh, the serpent makes is quite preposterous. Uh, The very idea that uh, their eyes will be opened to all this knowledge of good and evil and they'll be like God because they eat a piece of fruit is preposterous, isn't it? As though the fruit has magic powers. Now we spoke about that last time. It's not a magic tree. It's just a tree. It's a sign. Place of testing. And how could anyone believe that some blessing could come without God having first given it? But that's the suggestion that Satan makes. Just have that tree, ignore God, and you will have all this blessing. And friends, that's a belief that we are called to believe in every day of our lives as the world constantly comes to us with ways and means of gaining blessing, gaining knowledge, gaining riches, gaining pleasure, and all of it without God. I remember, and it can happen to rich and poor alike. I remember a young man I met in Solihull uh, some while back. He needed some money for rent. Uh, and I, I remember I probed him a little bit uh, and called me naive, but I thought he was credible at the time. And uh, I gave him some money. And uh, then I went on to suggest to him that he, he needed not to thank me, but to thank God. And give thanks to him. And I wanted to go on to tell him about the riches to be found in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that that was a treasure worth giving up everything for. And do you know what he said? He said, that's for church. But for now, I need money. <laughs> he wasn't interested in those riches. He just wanted the money. You see, he, this man, and many people do this, they make a trade. I don't want what God can give me. I want what the world can give me without God. It's a trade we are tempted to make every single day of our lives, to believe that God, Jesus, the Church of Jesus Christ, is only for Sunday. But what we really need is out there somewhere. And it's a lie. We need Jesus Christ. We need God in Jesus Christ. So we're nearly finished. Here's Eve, and Adam is standing beside her. And they have been turned over by Satan in the grasp of in 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 the in, his, in, in their grasp of truth. They've been induced to think ill of God, and from there to seek good things on their own terms. So the conclusion is a tragic one for Adam and Eve. You know, after being offered the knowledge of good and evil and being like God, as Satan said, do you notice what actually happened at verse 7? Then both of their eyes were opened. What did they see? They saw they were a bit naked. It's a bit of a letdown, isn't it? Uh, I could be like God if I have all of these things. And what do they see? 
They say, oh, I'm a bit, we're a bit naked. We need to find something to cover up with. It's pathetic. Satan always lets you down. And that's a tragedy. And what happens now is that we've seen is that Adam and Eve are, are wide open to the call of the senses and the lust of the heart. They take the fruit, uh, that small thing, but are breaking our precious relationship with God and yet cosmic in its consequences and the truth that is played out in every man and woman as they are tempted in the same way. They walk away from God and they are let down by Satan. So as we finish, is there hope in all of this? Well, let me just take you back to the tree of life. That sign of hope that is there in the garden. Contrary to Satan's suggestion, God is not short on goodness. But the way to the tree of life is not through trying to be obedient. That way is closed for everyone. But the tree points to another way. Actually, to another covenant. The covenant of grace. To another Adam. A new Adam, a last Adam, to Jesus Christ. And it's in him that we can be reconciled to God once again. But we'll come to that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. Thank you that it doesn't pull its punches. But Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see our sin as it truly is. Help us to be aware of the temptations that come our way. And we pray that you would help us to draw near to you through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.